Blind Insights meets Effective Altruism. We don't really have a plan. We just have a desire to have a conversation. What this emerged out of is Duke and Riley had been talking about effective altruism, so Duke was telling me about it. So I went away and sat in front of a half dozen YouTube videos and you watch them, I listened to them being a blind guy and found myself getting progressively angrier and angrier. Going, Singer normally shits me, but he's now got to a new level of annoying David. And I thought, why? But it was why in an interesting way, because what frustrated me is the idea of being effective, big tick. The idea of being altruistic, big tick. Why is it when the two words got put together, did it frustrate me so much? So then Riley and I chatted for an hour and a half and that turned eventually into the invitation to come and talk to you lot today. So I think what we'll do is we'll start with what frustrated me so you have some idea where I'm coming from and then Riley and Duke have got questions and then from there if you've got questions just stick your hand up, Tim will point at you, you say the question, Tim will reiterate the question so it goes in the recording and if you want to keep the conversation going beyond your first question, maybe come up here and you know plonk beside one of us at a mic and be on air if you're feeling brave. You, you can always say after no, just not no to the whole thing because well that would affect the rest of us. So going back to you know my initial response to effective altruism, the first video I found was Peter Singer doing his description where he goes, training a guide dog for someone in the West, very expensive, same amount of money, could save hundreds of people's sight in the developing world. And as a blind person, I had an immediate visceral response of get stuffed. And then went, why? Is my problem that I want a guide dog? And that's not the problem. In reality, I don't want a guide dog. The idea of trusting something that drools to keep me alive is something I hope never to get to that point. This is a non sequitur, but in the main, if you're blind and end up with a guide dog, it's because you've recently lost your sight and you never have the confidence to use a cane. Or like me, you've been a cane user long term, but you've destroyed your wrists and elbows through using the cane. Now, I haven't destroyed my wrists and elbows, and I don't like the idea of trusting something that drools. So why was I still angry? And the first thing I realized, it's because he was assuming that things are so bad, there are only enough resources to do one or the other. So the first great flaw to my mind in his argument was the assumption that we can only do one or the other. And I went, okay, I feel marginally better that I'd worked that out. And I thought, okay, he's also confusing quality of life in the West where the system is basically has a level of altruism that blind people aren't going to be allowed to beg on the street and die with the risk of going blind in the developing world where blindness is quite possibly a death sentence. So he's conflating quality of life in the developed world and being alive in the developing world. And that really bugged me that he couldn't distinguish the difference in those two things. I was still annoyed at this point. And then I thought, well, most of the time I teach security studies and work as a security analyst. And something's annoying me about this idea of abstracting human well-being, abstracting questions and answers about what society someone is in. So I started thinking from a security point of view, and I gave an example to master students in a tutor this morning. Let's imagine a hypothetical. You live in a society where you're well-fed, well-educated, will have a nice meaningful job, will live in a nice house. 
but the local dictator periodically needs to torture someone to death. And you know for all the benefits you get, periodically the dictator is going to pick someone and torture them to death. Now, question, and you make noise or put your hands up, do you want to live in that society? <laughs> One yes, a multiple of no. Is that a fair assessment? Right. Why? Fear. Right. So fundamental to everything, in my opinion, as a security specialist and a security analyst, is you have nothing unless you have a fundamental level of security. And the blind person in the developed world may or may not have a fundamental level of security. The blind person or the person who could go blind in the developing world may or may not have a fundamental level of security. But in both cases, effective altruism appears to be unable to grasp the significance of security being the most important thing to achieve. And I'm not talking a military form of security. I'm more than happy to go with the 1990s. The world is just fucked up monumentally in Rwanda. We've not stopped 800,000 people being killed with machetes. And we've developed the doctrine of human security to make ourselves feel better. Now, human security, awesome concept. The fundamental things that make our lives safe and better are what we should all, you know, be allowed to have and we should be able to push to have them. But that doesn't come out of altruism. It came out of guilt over 800,000 dead. This then as a security analyst took me into the perspective of, okay, literally since 2003 I've been trying to explain the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the kind of wars they will engender that will come next to 19-year-olds that are actively trying to avoid war. But the 19-year-old who goes to war goes to war in a modern society with the firm belief reinforced by the system that if they tread on an IED, their society will look after them. So there's an underlying social contract in effective functional societies that means a high level of effective altruism is already in place as long as you contribute to the society that gave you your nice life, which also may be missing for our person who could go blind in the developing world. You may need to save their sight so they are not sold into slavery or grabbed and put in a rare earth element mine in Congo to you know dig for rare earth elements with a hand trowel. So the society you make assessments about quality of life in is more important than the quality of life without first considering the society. So at the end of thinking about all that, Riley and I talked for an hour and a half over about three beers, had a great time, and thus came the invitation. So there is our starting point for Riley and Duke to ask questions, you guys to ask questions. And I am all for being effective and being altruistic. But I guess what I would argue from the perspective of a virtue ethics grounded in Nietzsche, grounded in Aristotle, grounded in the Chinese concept of Wu Wei, that if you have enough people who behave properly, constructing societies that are at least moderately okay, your model of effective altruism is to a greater degree founded in the collective than it is in individual abstracted action. Yeah, hey, Riley and Duke, questions, dudes. Okay, well, I'm Riley. I'm not I don't think I'm trying today to convince you of effective altruism. No, because I want to um, believe. In any, <laughs> in any sh way, shape, or form, but um, perhaps when we open up questions, someone will. So this um, can be about trying to convince me or just can you get some value 
out of my odd bod perspective on the universe yeah, that helps exactly. you fix, fix effective altruism. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so I'm trying to get some info from you. Um, I think you'll see when I, when I ask you some questions that um, effective altruists do care about security, perhaps more um, than that than you've given them credit for. Mm. And that's um, the problem of not diving in and making this my mission for months. You know, I did a half hour, well, sorry, half a day of a fast deep dive, but normally I can learn enough in a half day deep dive to already kind of get bored. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so, so I'll ask first um, a security related question actually. Um, so some effective altruists are worried about the risk of international conflict um, and especially kind of the tail risk of like all out nuclear war or, or like the worst possible um, kind of risks of suffering or extin extinction. And so what do you think um, are perhaps some ways to mitigate that risk or to avoid it? And what could people do if they're interested in kind of improving the state? improving the state of the world with regard to those risks. Okay, well, I think it comes back to the conversation we had that at the core of improving any society or any set of relationships is socialization to difference. The more exposure you have to difference, the more you see the similarities between you and the person you used to call different. So in terms of the risk of violence and warfare, one of the ultimate ironies is the people who will do the violence, the professional security personnel, have more in common with each other than they have with their political masters. And they know what the cost of violence is because they've all had the same training to implement it. And one of the greatest safety nets we have against violence is actually people in uniform telling their political masters what it will genuinely cost. And it's something that because most people don't study security, they don't understand. The least willing to be violent people in the room are normally the people in uniform who know exactly how many of their friends and their friends' children will die. So, you know, the broad ignorance about strategy and security in Western societies that take it for granted because other people provide security for them is one of our greatest problems. You know, when I teach whether it used to be undergrad strategic cultures or master's level strategic cultures, I made the same point to every class. The point of doing this course is the end of it. You could be part of the audience on Q&A you know, &A and ask a prime minister or a defense minister or a chief of an intelligence agency a question they can't comfortably answer, which is exactly how to make a safer world. We get a safer world when we are able to ask questions about the things that affect security in a way that force the professional elite to go, the population aren't stupid, and the political elite to go, we can't take you for granted. David, you put your finger on something I think interesting here. And a few of us that I recognize from a number of effective altruist events tend to focus on when we think of value and what we can do to help or be effective altruists, we talk about capital value because it's less abstract in some, mm. in some sense. It's more abstract in others. But now you've discussed value in terms of cost. Mm. The way that you set cost out was, in, was a matter of security. Mm. And now I'm thinking that there's a sense of value in security without which we can't make sense of value Every claims thing. at all. So I'm wondering if maybe your analysis is leading, well, at least it's inspired this question. Let's say I can give X amount of capital resources 
and that's got a measurable outcome, but I could commit myself to a more robust way forward by assigning myself more tasks. I mean, no offense, no one in here looks like a soldier and I'm certainly not, right? But maybe there's a sense in which the kind of security values, security as capital could be secured or established if we committed ourselves to something other than just giving 10% of our income. Absolutely. And this is a really important thing here. You know, there's no need for this to only be determined in a conventional state-centric security policy perspective. What I'm talking about is contributing to the collective that gave you the wonderful start you had. That nothing is more powerful than the ability to give back to a system and make it better than you found it. So doubling down on the whole thing of being a virtue ethicist, you will achieve more in maintaining and improving a collective through the example you set through your behavior than you will ever do by spending money. Why would we want to maintain the system as it stands? I think most of us disagree that it's a good one. Within a system are a heap of people who work with what they've got. This is an interesting thing. So many theorists are convinced that systems function well on their own and that systems break people to fit them. Whereas one interesting thing that comes out of all the research on high reliability organizations, so here's another hat of teaching applied thinking and complex problem solving. There's a whole body of organizations out there called high reliability organizations. And they're the organizations that do the most complicated things in the world and get them right most of the time. And when they get them wrong, people die. So it's the people in nuclear power plants. It's the people in emergency rooms. Um, it's you know crews on aircraft carriers. It's emergency services personnel turning up to a landslide or a fire. It's people with too little sleep, not enough resources, and barely enough training, getting good outcomes time and time again, beating the odds. And what comes out of the research on high reliability organizations is that so often we say that you know systems break people to what they need. What is amazing with high reliability organizations that keep doing these complicated things is the system itself can only get a middle of the road outcome. What makes these systems work well is the commitment of the people involved. So emergency rooms don't work well because people are well trained. Emergency rooms work well because people are committed to getting it right, which means they use their training more effectively. Firefighters are well trained, but being well trained doesn't make you run headlong into a fire. In the majority of situations where we used to say improve the system and you'll improve the outcome, High reliability organization research has showed the opposite, that the more you try and shape the system, the more you diminish agency, the more you diminish agency, the more people switch off. So the point of high reliability organizations is to have enough of a system so that people know what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and how to say this doesn't work or this is wrong. So David, how would you increase the sense of individual agency in obviously a world which is probably, I think everyone here would agree that there's a growing sense of powerlessness in this notion of a high reliability organization. How would you... Where to start? How would you give an individual a sort of model that they could follow? It strikes me that most of us would be likely or liable to default back to a more tribalist kind of, I can look after my own, I can take care of this many, but then there is no incentive for me to go beyond that. In fact, it would be it would be unrealistic for me to extend myself much beyond that. 
in order to stay effective, I'd need to kind of mm. simmer down what I've got into something, distill it into something that's actually useful rather than spreading it so thin that it doesn't really make a difference. This is the interesting thing with the high reliability organization world is as much as it's about getting the outcomes, whether they be medical, making sure energy runs, making sure emergency service works. It works because you have a tribe, a self-selecting tribe of people who want to be there. But they don't just take that mindset of doing the right thing saying when something doesn't work, implementing reform and change at work. They tend to have that throughout their lives. They have a greater impact at work because they're surrounded by similar people. And yet this is the problem. We're in a period where most organizations are trying to be more responsive. Most organizations are trying to listen to people more and engage better. And I've spent enough time in enough organizations training people to see that the problem is exactly the same across multiple organizations and the problem is generational. You have a generation of people who should have retired soon after the GFC, whose super got cut in half, who have stayed in whatever job they're in where they're too senior for their own good and they've lost any capacity to adapt and evolve. So part of the big reason for frustration in our society and in most of our systems at the moment is because there's a group of people who should have just fucked off. And they've slowed down promotion dramatically. Gen X is like me, well, like me, have had to step out of the system because the system's moving too slow. Because people who've long since stopped evolving haven't yet left systems. What I've seen consistently training people, and it doesn't really matter where it is, it doesn't matter if it's the public service, whether it's in the corporate sector, whether it's in the military, whether it's in a law firm, whether it's in an emergency team in emergency medicine, same thing's true. The majority of people under 40 are itching to fix it. The majority of people over 55 are exhausted and just want to get to the end. So as much as you may believe at the moment because you're so young, and you're at uni still, that the problem is systemic. The problem isn't systemic. The problem is the system is under control of people who are not genuinely willing to change. And if we look historically, what we've normally had is elites who generation to generation to generation are unwilling to change until the rest of society breaks them. The one advantage we have is we don't have an elite problem in most of the areas that would improve society. We only have a generational problem. So that brings me kind of into another thing that I wanted to ask you, which is relating this to kind of groups. If you are starting out kind of trying to shape a community or, or build a community that will um, make better decisions and that will do, do things more effectively, be it kind of a small, a small group like a university club or a larger kind of global community like effective altruism is becoming. What advice would you give to somebody starting one of these communities or trying to shape okay. how that new community acts? There's a few really important things. If we want to look at an underlying philosophy to run on, the fascinating thing is at the same point, Aristotle is writing the Nicomachean Ethics. You know, Chinese Taoists are coming up with the idea of Wu Wei, effortless action. So in both cases, it doesn't matter if you're in ancient Athens or you're in ancient China, the same decisions were made by profound thinkers. And that is you practice your discipline of behaving well until it becomes so second nature, you just do it. And both of them were skeptical of deontological systems where the rule book was huge and therefore incapable of adaptation. So when you're looking for the underpinnings of your system, 
you need a small number of simple rules that can be internalized that are about how you are going to behave, not what the outcome is. Much of the world is beyond your control and will remain beyond your control. You will only get some control over it as the size of your group grows and you can apply more weight. But you can only work in that group if you trust the people around you. And it can't be about outcome, otherwise people start manipulating to get outcomes. Virtue ethics is difficult, but there's a reason why throughout recorded history we keep returning to it, because it's the only thing that keeps stacking up. Every time things get bad, we rediscover virtue ethics. Every time things get bad, we rediscover how many virtue ethicists there have been before us. We discover how a half dozen simple rules discipline to the point where they just emerge, where you don't even know what the outcome is going to be, but you know you've behaved in a way where you're being an exemplar that the people who trust you will keep trusting you, and the new member of the group sees a reason to want to be like the group. So in terms of underlying philosophy, keep it simple and keep it virtuous. But the side that so often gets lost um, in philosophy and in organizational structure, literature, is it has to be on a human scale. So there's a reason why around the world, immaterial of whether it's the local social group, the local you know, social club like Apex or Rotary or a military unit, that the basic unit is always about 30 humans. And the larger unit is always a maximum of 150 humans. And that the unit of 150 humans doesn't directly do anything with another unit of 150 humans because it becomes chaos. At that point, you choose some leaders who make sure that both groups of 150 know what they're doing. So you work with people you know, people whose names you can remember, people whose stories you can remember. As much as we want to abstract ourselves into better behavior, it doesn't work. You're talking about... You know, the character, developing the character, a moral fabric, a fiber, perhaps moral education. But let's face it, most people are going to be more responsive to outcomes, consequences, things that they can measure. Um, I would say thanks to capitalism, we think there should always be an overt woohoo, I did the deed and now I've got the toy, or I did the deed and now I've got the endorphin. And I think that is basically a modern perspective and has probably done us immense harm. You know, mercantilism, as we understand it, only really emerges at the end of the Renaissance. Capitalism only really emerges in the early 19th century. And the decline in ability to work effectively as collectives has both become more obvious since then. But when collectives work well together now, they work with a level of sophistication they didn't have before because now they have more information and more resources. So we are simultaneously the most able we've ever been to be effective, but the most distracted by pointless crap. So the real problem now is not can we do it, it's can we stop ourselves being distracted long enough to start doing it. David, your rhetoric about how in in hard times that people find their way back to some form of virtue ethics, um, I think is a good argument, but perhaps it only stands to prove that in hard times, that is the best measure to bring us back to something that resembles good. And maybe people in this room who who, uh, identify as effective altruists are perhaps aspirational in finding perhaps, you know, the uh, 1% you know, the, the, the 1% of things that they could be doing that make this world great and not just good. Uh, it, you know, having a specific set of rules that you wouldn't find in virtue ethics may be uh, the aim of making a, um, a, a perfect kind of society if, the, if, if such a thing were to, uh, to exist, to take it beyond what we can achieve with, with virtue ethics. Okay, well, let's look historically. Almost every religion in history 
has said, hand over a chunk of your income stream. So effective altruism is not new, it's just taking God out of the mix. It's also taken the collectivity out of the mix. You can take one out or you can take the other out. You take both out and you've essentially created a pretty abstraction. And pretty abstractions don't stick. Historically, they don't stick. So if we look back to the 19th century, first international, Marx one side of the room, Bakun and the other, the anarchists versus the Marxists. They weren't there arguing over ideas. They were there arguing over improving the lives of the people they cared about. We read it now as theory and ideology. They lived it in a visceral way where Bakunin's number two turned to him and said, Mikhail, I have my revolver. I can kill Marx. So you can either live shit or you can abstract shit. And if you want to abstract it and you can make yourself give 10% while abstracting, and you can make your behavior marginally better, awesome. But what history and human behavior shows us is that giving that 10% of your income and moderately better behavior will still not satisfy the human need for meaning and belonging. So far, you've discussed history, I mean, our past, all the way back to at least some 2,000 years ago. But let's face it, a lot of the, th- the kinds of things that we're trying to implement here, actually, we won't see the consequences of. We're trying to improve the state of play so that potential generations will benefit from our actions, not even our friends now, necessarily. Looking to improve the world so that it can go on and it can be better and it can be progressive. But given that we won't benefit from that whatsoever, how would you even begin to convince somebody that that's something they ought, they ought to do? Interestingly, there we can either go back to the very old models or, you know, the hundred-year-old models. Really, the Roman Empire grew and grew and grew and grew, and even when Rome fell, Constantinople lasted another thousand years because of the commitment to this thing that was bigger and better than chaos. So the fascinating thing, as much as we look back now and go, being absorbed into the Roman Empire, you lost everything you were, but out of it you got security. Out of it, you got an economic system that could deliver food when there was drought in your region. When there was insecurity, it's much easier to look long-term. We're used to security, which means why look anywhere? So if we jump back, you know, 120 years, we jump back, well, 130 years now, to Nietzsche walking just below the snow line, making the point, you know, he's going to ubermensch himself into being a better Nietzsche. He doesn't really care if anyone gets it at the time. He makes the point in his introductions, he doesn't care if they don't get it for a century. He doesn't assume most people will get it, even a century after he wrote it. Rob's come. I recognize your voice. We've met before. Yes, we've had lunch with Doug. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, I wanted to return back to the point about, first, can we clarify, is it the focus on outcomes, one of your main issues with uh, effective altruism and utilitarianism in general? It's too focused on outcomes and in doing so, it doesn't have a virtue ethic. Okay, so then I guess what I'd like to push on is then what's the cash value in having a virtue ethic? What's, what's good See, about this being is, virtuous? This is a thing where I think I'm in a weird position being blind. Okay, how many of you have ever been taught by a blind person other than me? <laughs> None. One. <Ooh>. Wow. <laughs> we have one in the room. Awesome. And a small sample size. That's pretty good. That's, yeah, that's a first, to have one person who's been taught by a blind person other than me. So 
in a society where I'm guaranteed to be an outsider, I'm not allowed to win according to the standard rules. I worked out very early that the standard rules are stupid. I can't have the two million in cash, so why chase it? And what I've watched, and it's been an interesting thing to watch from the outside, if you can't have it, you go, well, what else matters? But just keep watching going, are people happy when they get it? And the interesting studies and study after study after study across the world, that beyond a certain point of cash, people don't get any happier. And social psychology study after social psychology study, anthropology study after anthropology study, that beyond a basic level of income buying you a certain level of life, you know, you don't get any happier the more stuff you have. Sorry, sorry, then I should definitely clarify that. I meant cash value in a very uh, metaphorical sense. Yeah, well, <laughs> in a, so in a tangible sense, what's the value in ethical if the outcomes, we might say, are negative? Right? Ethics. So it seems like ethics is tied to outcomes. No. Ethics is connected to living in your own head and not waking up screaming. What if everyone around me is screaming? And that's their problem. <laughs> Again, see, this is where I'll fall back into being a good little chameleon and going, the world is absurd. But the absurdity is okay because Tim's sitting beside me and he's got the same grimace from the absurdity. It's one of the most beautiful bits of, is it the myth of Sisyphus? can't remember which book, but the wonderful description of yeah. absurdity where, you know, he looks around and realises someone else has got the same grimace because they realise it's painful, but it's also funny. Because it's just how it is. So I think part of the reason why we could go around in circles about cash value endlessly is because if you've accepted the existential norm that there is no meaning other than that which you find and make through your own effort, big deal. There's cash. There's other people. Other people only matter once you've realised you want to put some meaning in the world. There's no meaning intrinsically in them. The meaning comes from you deciding that a society in which you put something in, they put something in, and you'll get more back than you put in. That's the prize. The intuition is that the other people have intrinsic value. I think, I think yeah, is, the, is, the, is the challenge, perhaps. Well, we live in a society that says we have human rights and we have value, and yet we only just stop throwing 18-year-olds away in pointless wars. Now we only throw away a proportion of 18-year-olds in pointless wars. Yeah. Who, you know, to a large extent, don't have other choices. We still have multiple societies in the world where life is really cheap, which is really uncomfortable. But is that uncomfortable because their life is cheap or because we wouldn't like the idea that our life is that cheap? So are we abstracting on others or are we freaking out about our own life may not have value? I'm going to take the existential path and go, until you admit that you're freaking out about the fact that your own life may not have value, you can't then value other people. Okay, well then... For me, I would like to push it further then and say that perhaps or what I'm hearing then is virtue ethics is a good way to produce meaning, but it's not a good way to define meaning. Yes. So virtue ethics will give us a good method, a few simple rules, as you said, to guide behavior, something easy to internalize and to become habit. So it's an effective psychological or decision theory, yet doesn't give us a moral theory. No. What, what kind of behaviours should we be internalising or aiming towards? Okay, then we end up in the interesting point of, and then we'll jump back into psychology because philosophers want to believe that we can think and we can do a lot. You know, current neurology would say 3% of what's going on in our heads is conscious. 97% is beyond our control. 
And it's the 97% that says other people matter. It's the 97% that says it's nicer to have company than not. It's the 97% that works out that safety and enjoying other people's company is nicer than not. So this whole idea of in a deep way looking for a morality, I'm not actually sure it's that deep. <laughs> I think it actually just requires allowing a collective to grow and deciding what behaviour works amongst a group of people. And if you're not comfortable there, don't be there. I would like to offer something that might be slightly depressing. <laughs> he feels the need. Um, the you know studies done on trained ethicists show, in the main, that they say no more P's and T's. Uh, have no uh, do you know, give no give no more to charity than uh, and than an average person. So, I think we all are here because. I, I would imagine most of you are here because you think that there is something that we can be learning and doing so that we can actually have a better effect on the world. I'm not, I'm not sure whether what David is saying is that maybe that's just not possible. <laughs> no, no. what I'm saying is the fact you're already here, you have what you need. Mm-hmm. By turning up on a Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. when you could already be on the piss <laughs> to talk about what to do to make a better world, you're already there. Now do it. Yes, And so. you can abstract it into oblivion and do that over a beer with this group of people whose company you enjoy and who you want them to live in a safe world because that's enough people to start making that first small community that will be an exemplar and appealing to other people to join and bumble through as you go along because 97% of it is outside your control. But the 3%, you've already done it. This is the great failure to me of modern Western philosophy. It pretends we haven't already worked out the important bits, when actually we have. They're all already in play. There's nothing new in the world of how to make a better world because it keeps bubbling up out of us. You know, Unless you are the 2% of males who are sociopaths or the 1% of females who are sociopaths, you're probably going to do stuff that is already leaning towards it at least staying as good as it is. So, you know... Share that last 10 bucks to buy two schooners rather than having a big pint on your own. You know, go halves on a kebab. Don't have one of your own if someone else hasn't got any money this week. And you're on the path to winning. And you're being effective in the most fundamental way because it will reinforce that you will do the same thing next week. Like how many Fridays do you guys catch up and talk about effective altruism per year? <laughs> right. You've already won. <laughs> So where's the activity after effective altruism afternoon to all put a couple of bucks in, go somewhere, buy some food, and go help some homeless people? Where's the thing after effective altruism afternoon to go to DJ's, look for a low-cost warm coat on a cold night, and go give it to a homeless person? Combine your community with a small gesture each time that you can do as a group. You can do this. You can win. And then start another group or splinter another group off of 15 to 30 people. And occasionally have the big thing with no more than 150 so you can theoretically remember everyone's name and story and get their ideas and then go and win again. What you, what you just said doesn't seem incompatible perhaps with maybe what some other people have already had, had believed before they came into this, this talk. I, I'm, I'm projecting their thoughts onto this. <laughs> <laughs> Prove me wrong. <laughs> Tell me off. You're already winning by being here. Now implement it. Now, part of the success of society, who's read Foucault? There's uh, two, All of you. Three, four, five. Quarter of the room. Okay, Michel Foucault died of AIDS in the mid-80s, 
probably the biggest loss to modern thought in a century. I uh, was going to write the great book on Camus, which would have been amazing. Essentially explained how from mm, the Industrial Revolution onwards, we've all internalised social control. We've internalised passivity that makes life easy for elites. You're allowed to be smart. You're not allowed to be dangerous. That will be normalised out of you. Now, I've been you know, teaching in this university on and off since 2002. What was a distinction essay got 75% in 2002 would now get 84 As time goes on, the effectiveness of the socialization to make you competent and passive gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Now you're competent, stop being passive. That's actually your principal battle. By coming together as a group with a common aim for social improvement, you've already won. Now stop being passive. And not in a big scary way. You know, don't go and do, you know, the yellow vest movement. Don't go and help petrol bombs at trains. doesn't have to be Hong Kong. Go find your small thing to do each time you get together that takes you one step towards being collective and effective. You know, so I would change the name to, you know, effective collectivism. Because the individualism that comes out of Singer, which is very much modern philosophy, is part of of the methodology of control. If I can break you down to be on your own, fear will dominate you. System wins, you lose. You know, if we look back to the Spanish Civil War, when the anarchists could get organised, they kicked ass. Their problem was getting organised. <laughs> they weren't sufficiently collective. Riley's got a question. So, um, so it seems like what you're saying is um, kind of keep, the ideas of altruism keep trying to do things better like try and do more good rather than less but try and do more good as a group so think about kind of a smaller group or up to 150 people and think about how how much good can that group do as a collective rather than um kind of how much good can i individually do and that that will well i mean the effective altruism side of it that that might be able to produce better outcomes than an individual can. Let it be at a scale where your unconscious brain gives you happy drugs. But also you keep- need endorphins out of this. Sorry, Tim. Sorry. Also keeping a check and taking care of the group that you're in, in. first That's and foremost, so that you can be more effective as a group to help others. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Again, a group that can hold itself together and look after itself can do more for others because it's in a better state. And change the subject. Okay. David, do you think that in the future we'll come out of a capital-based society and go more towards a resource-based economy? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for people who've listened to Blind Insights before, you know that um, we did a thing with the Post Carbon Institute with uh, Richard Heinberg uh, on the whole end-of-growth argument. And if Richard's right, and he probably is, (laughs) you know, we're past peak oil, we're past peak coal. Uh, we don't have the access we need to rare earth elements. Fertilizer is going to be a problem. Clean water is going to be a problem. Life's about to get very interesting. Cash is going to be meaningless. And even gold, which is the traditional thing of value, unless you turn it into projectiles, what's its value going to be? So, yeah, you know, at the moment, most trading is done by machines. Most money doesn't exist other than in databases. There has to be a different way to define value. That's not to say I have the answer on that because that's not my interest. My interest is how to get someone to cope in the transition 
as things fall to bits. You know, if someone like Warren Buffett at the moment has removed $122 billion from the share market in the last year and left it sitting as nominal cash. Now, it doesn't exist physically. You can't touch it, count it. But to pull $122 billion out of the global market means the most switched-on investor in the world believes the current system of value is screwed. That's a big thing. So the most important value, and again, I hate to go back to the same point, but if we don't know what's valuable, what's valuable is connections who have skills and resources that you don't and that they're used to sharing with you because you matter. That's always mattered. If we go back, again, historical example, constructing a legion within the Roman Empire, take people from all over the empire, dump them together, train them together to keep each other alive. And then at the end of their 30-year service, dump them on the new border and make them the new Roman population to hold the new ground. Why are they committed to it? Do they love the empire? Only a little bit, but they love each other. And that becomes the foundation for stabilizing security and economic and social stability. Yeah, anyone in the room read Michelle Howellebeck's novel, Atomized? Guessing no? Uh, two. Two. Okay. It's about the darkest novel we have on what modern France looks like in terms of this amazing world full of beauty, art, thought, and yet everyone's experiencing it as an isolated individual and the destructive consequences of that. You know, so value will sort itself out if we value each other. If we don't value each other, it really doesn't matter what else we give value to. Do you think that abstracting, abstracting value in the ways that we have has actually diminished our capacity to express value towards each other in the way you're describing? Well, it, consumption as a substitute for connection is good for making profit. You know, the entire system we are in, from mercantilism onwards, from about 1550-1600 onwards, is designed that I can have power over you because of things I can afford to have. There's always been a degree of that. There's always been an elite of some sort. But it was a very small elite, and then everyone else was kind of bumbling along. The ultimate trick of the post-World War II world was the end of World War II, most advanced economies, most what we would now call the advanced states that became the modern liberal democracies, came out of World War II with mixed economies, a combination of the state doing things that had social value, business doing things that had economic value, and the combination of the two creating two generations of the most empowered, healthiest, best educated humans in history. But the power of those who believed in the economic side of that equation was to sell greed, that rather than maintaining that balance between social good and economic opportunity, and all right, Most mixed economies by the mid-70s weren't well-managed because it was brand new and no one knew how. But they also weren't bereft of value. We were convinced that they were bereft of value because we were sold greed. We were sold the idea that extrinsic value, more stuff, makes us more successful and makes us happier. And the research since proves that's not true. That's why people like Daniel Pink write about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic value that everyone is a combination of the two, but the better constructed the study, the more we see that wherever you survey people in the world, the majority of people are more intrinsically motivated than they are extrinsically motivated. Most people do more for the sake of well-being than they do to make money. But we've you know, accepted a system that says through consumption you can be your best and happiest self. 
You know, the ultimate con job at the moment is selling 1.4 billion Chinese, the idea that stuff can make up for no rights. If you look that the number of little sort of, I can't think what the wonderful Chinese euphemism for riot is, but it's going up on average by 70% a year. You know, if you can sit in far north China watching your cheap flat screen TV and see how much better life is in Shanghai, is that a thing to be happy about? Yeah, fantastic book. Again, most of you probably have not had a chance to read it, um, simply because no one seems to have read it. Uh, David Graver's book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Now, the fantastic thing with his book on debt is what he indicates is that the vast majority of regimes who last, last because periodically they relieve debt on their population. Debt is nothing but a control mechanism. It has always been a control mechanism. Even when debt was only related to land, because land was the only thing you could own, debt was a control mechanism. And that every time there was a new grand poobah, they relieved some debt and bought another 10 to 15 years of peace. And that it's when they don't relieve debt that there's normally a revolution. The person who says, I'll relieve more debt, becomes the new grand poobah. Now we're in an era where we've been told that debt is our friend and debt will enable us to consume and be happy. And who's winning from this? Who's the grand poobah that's getting away with keeping us in debt? The problem is we can't see the grand poobah anymore. It's now you know, an invisible organisation and we're not even talking about something tangible like land or gold coin. We're talking about the idea we owe them. I'm going to open up. We're going to have to finish up. I'm going to open up. Any, any, final, any final comments or questions? We'll try and summarise that, Robert. Seeing a mic didn't grab that. Do you want me to have a go? We got uh, time. I think yeah, if you could say something that maybe just make may may give some people some optimism as they leave the room would also be nice. Okay. <laughs> hey, I, I thought I'd given you something very optimistic, and you're already doing it. So what we've just heard from the audience was Robert was making the point he was also thinking about Warren Buffett and the fact that he doesn't give away his money on his own. He does it in conjunction with Bill and Melinda Gates and the foundation, and whether this is competitive or cooperative almost doesn't matter. The point is it's done within the context of a relationship with others and that the, the implied significance of this is that our need for connectedness means that maybe that good behaviour will be broader than just giving money away. It will actually be who we want to be and how we want to be. You know, so to sort of try and put a, a positive end on this, and I actually think I've been fairly positive. Now, one of my wonderful Romanian students once described me as a cynical optimist. I will tell you exactly how bad it is and then try and work out how to fix it. And I will return to something I said earlier. By turning up on a Friday afternoon to talk about effective altruism in a group that's big enough to connect and do stuff, you've already won. Now just get over your socially conditioned passivity and as a group, do one little thing at a time, above and beyond this, that helps someone. And in doing so, grow your confidence as a group to take on bigger challenges together and then with other groups and to extend your group and eventually split into other groups because the good behaviour, it sounds to me, you want to manifest, isn't just to give away 10% of your income. It's to be people you can be happy to be. End it there. Yeah, thank you very much, everyone, for, for joining us. I thank hope you for you'll, turning uh, up. Yeah, and join me in thanking David for his uh, words this evening. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.